0: I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com and slash hypergig with details. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A
1: wine country, huh?
0: A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait!
1: Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just 897 at the Home
0: Depot. How doers get more done. Too much information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello everyone, this is Jordan, your TMI buddy. Well, it's summertime, which means the schedules can get a little crazy, and this week our little TMI crew has been on the move traveling. And also, if you allow me a shameless plug. I've been tied up launching a new podcast called Stone's Touring Party, which explores the craziness surrounding the Rolling Stones tour of America in 1972, right after they released their landmark double album, Exile on Main Street. This show's called from 60 hours of never-before-heard interviews with the band during this wild time in their history. The Hells Angels have a hit out on Mick Jagger, the band's equipment van's blown up, they wind up in jail for a time, it's nuts. Now, if you'll allow me to read from the press release, part rock doc, part true crime, Stone's Touring Party is an all-access pass to the sights, sounds, riots, bombings, drug busts, death threats, and other assorted mayhem from this pivotal moment in American history. We'll put a trailer in the show feed here, so uh, yeah, check it out if you're so inclined. And I hope you enjoy it. Okay, plug over. All this to say, we sadly were not able to complete a new episode of TMI this week. We are so, so sorry. But rest assured, we're not going anywhere. In fact, just earlier today, we recorded two new episodes that we can't wait to share with you. So don't worry, there's more coming from us very soon. To make it up to you, I dug into the TMI vaults to reshare one of my favorite episodes we did last year, Margaritaville by Jimmy Buffett. I felt like I'd fit that whole summer vibe. Uh, plus, Heigl hates it, which is always fun. I just wanted to put it out there in case you're new to the show and haven't come across it yet. And also offer my sincere apologies for no new episode this week. I promise we'll be back to our regular schedule next Friday. Till then, hope you have a great week. everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known fascinating facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We are your heroes of the, huh, that's pretty interesting. My name's Jordan Runtog.
1: And I'm Alex Eigl. That was pretty good. Thank you. I, I ran be- out of gas on these, but you're still— I'm you're still, still trying. Yeah. I'm
0: going to try to keep this bit going as long as we can. <laughs> Well, it is the week of the 4th of July weekend, so it seems like the perfect time to discuss one of the sunniest, breeziest, booziest songs in existence. Yes, of course, we're talking about Jimmy Buffett's immortal Margaritaville, which turned 45 this year. Now, even after all this time, I'm still not sure if this is the saddest happy song or the happiest sad song. It's kind of like Dancing Queen by ABBA, which we've also talked about. Could go either way. I'm hard-pressed to name a song that's ostensibly about middle-aged regret that's been so wholeheartedly embraced by college students on spring break. There's really two schools of thought on Margaritaville. On one (laughs) hand, it's an escapist anthem that presents an idealized version of a tropical Shangri-La. On the other, it's a song about self-loathing, regret, and a nightmarish descent into alcoholism (laughs) while your personal paradise becomes overrun with tourists and destroyed by capitalism. (laughs) We will discuss both sides of this argument today. But capitalism certainly plays a big part in this episode. Bloomberg has called Margaritaville the most lucrative song in history, kicking off a business empire that pulls in nearly $2 billion a year. Not bad for a song that barely broke the top 10 when it was released in 1977. The song was responsible for jumpstarting a lifestyle brand that extends to restaurants, resorts, casinos, clothing, record labels, radio stations, a Broadway production, food products, and even a retirement community. Heigel, what is your experience with uh Jimmy Buck? The song sucks.
1: I fucking hate it so much. I hate it so much. The beer is awful. I think Landshark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Landshark. Awful, awful, disgusting. I I don't like it. I went to school in Virginia, so like perilously close to the what they hashtag Salt Life, the like Delmarva, Delaware, Maryland, never heard that. Virginia, Panhandle, Tidewater region. Never heard that. Outer Banks, just sunburnt racist and jeep wranglers rolling around blasting fish. I fing hate it. This is the apotheosis of like boring white people music to me. And it's so Atavistic, capitalist greed Disguised as, well. Oh, I'm just taking the artist's Rights back Okay <laughs> Well, we're gonna have some fun On this episode
0: <laughs> Well, Jimmy Buffett Is famously the son of a son of a sailor As one of his songs goes And I am the son of a parrot head or thereabouts, Uh, I actually recall being taken to several Jimmy Buffett shows growing up as a little boy. And um, I have two vivid memories. One of them is the sight of a giant papier-mâché shark on the roof of the VW microbus next to us in the parking lot during the tailgate party. And the other memory is my father saying, with what I believe to be genuine admiration, damn, Jimmy Buffett, that guy made a ton of money by singing about doing nothing. (laughs) Yeah. And that stuck with me. And he's absolutely right. Oh man, I mean JB. <laughs> two JBs that How work very dare you. The two hardest working men in <laughs> show business are both JB, James Brown and Jimmy Buffett. You know, you could not like his music, but that guy, he does. He hustles. He be hustles, yeah. We will look at the colorful cast of characters that helped inspire the song, the real life rock and roll king that very nearly wound up recording it. The long lost verse the unproduced Harrison Ford, Robert Redford buddy movie inspired by the lyrics and the and the multi-billion dollar brand based on its title. Here's everything you didn't know about Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville. James William Buffett was born on December 25th, 1946. Truly, a Christmas present to all humanity. He spent (coughs) his childhood growing up in Mobile, Alabama, and as I said earlier, he's the son of a sailing ship captain, the son of a son of a sailor, as he'd later sing. And this would have a marked impact on the songs he'd write, which are chock full of the beach, fishing, and sailing. His earliest musical experiences were in the school bands playing trombone, which I find adorable. Mm -hmm. And his parents wanted him to become either a priest or naval officer, and he was enrolled in parochial school and an all male prep school. All of which makes me assume that this whole beach bum persona was a reaction against this sort of very regimented upbringing.
1: He's not related to Warren Buffett. They took a 23 me test. Did they really? Yeah. Although they still call each other Uncle Warren and Cousin Jimmy.
0: And they're probably worth about the same amount of money.
1: Uh, Jimmy Buffett, it's an estimated 550 million. And I think Warren is 83 billion. I wonder if he calls Warren Buffett for financial advice. Almost certainly. Yes. Oh,
0: yeah. Wow. <laughs> I have to say, during my research of Jimmy Buffett, I discovered that he gets kind of weird when it comes to talking about his past or just his life in general. When a reporter from the South Florida Sun Sentinel came to interview him in 1988, he was told by Jimmy, I can only give you an hour. I already told my life story. I never expected to live this long anyway. And he echoed this sentiment when the reporter asked him about his fans. He said, I got a good following in Boston, Ohio and Portland. I don't bother at 40 trying to figure it out. I never figured I'd live this long anyway. <laughs> he keeps going back to that. And then the reporter adds, when Jimmy Buffett tells his life story, he doesn't like interruptions. This wasn't a conversation. It was a monologue. And in the 90s, a writer by the name of Steve Ang contacted Jimmy Buffett saying that he wanted to write his authorized biography. He received a letter back from Jimmy saying in part, I'm more than capable of writing my own autobiography. I don't need any help or third person interpretations. It is my life. I live it. Live your own life and stop trying to figure out mine. So that's interesting. I, I say that not to take shots at Jimmy Buffett, but I think it's interesting to get the sort of the the steely underside of this this guy with this Fun in the Sun beach bum yeah, persona. That's interesting. I, I
1: admire the kind of core of like resigned. Staring into the void (laughs) Of a margarita You know I I admire that I gotta say That's That's the closest He and I get to kinship (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, i like that that's the you know think of the great character
0: actresses i mean marilyn monroe jane mansfield the, the dumb blonde persona when right. these women were incredibly well read incredibly intelligent sure. you know spoke multiple languages that kind of thing we're very aware of what they were doing i think on some level he he that's has that jimmy intelligence yeah. yeah he has that intelligence anyway <laughs> this is the first of many instances where i will overintellectualize jimmy buffett <laughs> <laughs> the, the hidden darker meaning of cheeseburger In paradise The deep
1: inner pain of math sucks um, <sighs> anyway. How many size Somebody keeping track of my size at home you know, Size count <laughs> Uh, Jimmy Buffett,
0: getting back to Jimmy Buffett's early days, he discovered the guitar in college in the mid-60s when he noticed that his guitar-playing friend got a lot of attention from the ladies due to his six strings. So Jimmy Buffett got one himself, and he learned to play. And before long, he was so focused on his musical career that he quit focusing on his grades and flunked out. And since this was during the Vietnam War, being in college was crucial to avoiding the draft, so he enrolled in another school in Mississippi, not far from New Orleans. And it was in New Orleans that he cut his teeth as a performer. He played small clubs. And it also was a regular street performer playing on street corners for anyone who would listen. I guess there was a rich French Quarter hippie scene in the late 60s in New Orleans. And I guess I'm just imagining the, like, acid flashback scene from Easy Rider when they filmed in that graveyard there in New Orleans. I can't imagine a hippie scene in New Orleans other than that.
1: I think that Grateful Dead famously hated New Orleans. Did they? Yeah. Isn't that where they got—I think that's where they got arrested. Yeah, busted down on Bourbon Street in trucking. Oh, Famously yeah. Famously oh, did not oh. have a good time in New Orleans. Man, <laughs> yeah, whatever. Jimmy Buffett did. in hippies. <laughs> so, yeah, while we're talking about the early years, the rise to power. I'm honing his sound. Yeah, so he's got an early country's influence. So rather than New York or L.A., he moves to Nashville. And uh, it was also because he didn't have enough money to make it as far as New York or L.A. Because yeah, you you draw the parallel between uh, the Eagles and sort of that folk, rocky adjacent uh, Laurel Canyon. Shit. We'll get to Timothy B. Schmidt of the Eagles later. Yeah, he's a lot of ties with the Eagles, Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, same with you know. I just thought when you when the margarita thing, I thought of um, Warren Zevon. All the salty margaritas in Los Angeles. I'm gonna drink them up. Oh, the line wow. in um, Desperados Under the Eaves. Also a guy who had tight ties with the successfully alienated everyone in the Laurel Canyon. <laughs> Folk rock scene. Did Jimmy Buffett and Warren Zevon have any kind of relationship? That's a great question. I Oh my god, I think they might have. I know Warren Zevon was in the um he was in that fucking weird band with Dave Barry and Stephen King. Oh, the Rock Bottom remainder. Rock Bottom remainders. Yeah. yeah. Up, uh, here we go. Sure enough, they played uh Jackson brown and Warren Zevon and Jimmy Buffett original triple header. Jimmy Buffett has in fact covered Lawyers Guns and Money. Oh, that makes a lot of sense and oh my god this is insane in a 2011 interview with bill flanagan of the huffington post asked some of his favorite songwriters bob dylan said jimmy buffett i guess gordon lightfoot warren Zevon, randy newman john prine guy clark they all said jimmy buffett no no dylan that's that's who dylan named but the first thing out of his mouth was buffett i guess Asked which Jimmy Buffett songs he likes, Dylan replied, Death of an unpopular poet. And there's another one called He Went to Paris. Anyway, he lands in Nashville. He says uh, he had a hard time fitting in because his songs were not quite country enough, and he was an outsider. Uh, He would later say, I hated Nashville. I hated the Philippines. (laughs) I hated Nashville. A little Ringo Starr anthology talking head reference for you. Uh, It's too closed and incompetent. And there's a lot of nepotism. How dare you say that about some of the best musicians in the country? Sunburnt garbage human. Uh, he looks like Joe Walsh in a lot of these archival photos. The kind of Prince Valiant and the dirtbag stash. <laughs> anyway, oh, no. he takes his only—he takes really his only desk job. He was a reporter for Billboard magazine as the uh, Nashville correspondent. His big scoop was breaking the news that bluegrass icons Flatten Scruggs had broken up. One of the few mu- uh, music journalists who made the jump from uh, Pound in the Keys to Pound in the Stage, Morrissey used to work for the Record Mirror before the Smiths and wrote a short book about the New York Dolls. It's more basically a pamphlet. I think it's like 20 pages or something. Sure. Uh, Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Boys was an editor at Marvel Comics. Mm, I think so, yeah. Lenny Kaye, right?
0: Yeah. I almost think of them him doing the Patti Smith group and writing it kind of simultaneously. Oh, sure, yeah, sure, 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 sure,
1: sure. Anyway, back to Buffett. He's writing about uh these country icons during the day, which is funny because it's a very conservative world, but then he's going around at night in a fringed jacket singing at anti Vietnam rallies, uh, which he said was risky business in those days. Is he conservative? I guess. No. Not. Yeah, no, I guess he, not. He, I, mean, I did just look up his charities. He he has uh ocean preservation charities, predicted. Oh, he loves
0: manatees. That's yes, a big one. Yes. That was
1: the big one, the manatee charity. So eventually he does land a record deal and has to quit Billboard because it's a conflict of interest. Uh, Talking with the New York Times in 2018, he said Billboard gave him a view of the record industry as indentured servitude, which is really just the perfect tone deaf boomer comparison to make. And, uh, you know, also in that Times interview is this hilarious anecdote, which I did fact check later about him agreeing to sit for a Rolling Stone interview over beers one night that would then take place the following afternoon and getting around to the interview 5 years later. <laughs> you uh, think he would have treated a fellow reporter better. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so he gets signed uh to Barnaby Records, a label founded by Andy Williams, easy listening icon Andy Williams, Holiday Mainstay in my house, Andy Williams Christmas album. Yeah, that is bizarre. But a label home to Paul Anka Ray Stevens, Claudine Lange, I don't know any of these. I know, I mean, I know Paul Anka, but what the hell is Claudine Lange? What's a, what's a Claudine Long, Longet, Lange? She
0: was, a, um, she was like a French easy-listening singer in the 60s, and she was an actress. She was yep. in the, 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 the Peter Sellers movie, The Party, and uh, sang some Henry Mancini songs. And then she shot her skier oh, husband. Oh, okay. Okay, uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and she shot her skier husband, I forget his name, uh, I believe to death. And got away with it. And then um, uh, SNL did a whole bit in the 70s about the Claudine Lange Invitational. And it just was a skiing uh, skiing <laughs> competition, <laughs> basically married with, like, skeet shooting. Like, they go Ooh. up off the jumps, and then you'd hear a gunshot.
1: All right, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm happy we got there. Uh, he recorded his first album in 1970 called Down to Earth, uh, which has been disavowed by both him and his fans as part of his canon. Folk rock, again, Laurel Cannon stuff. Um, uh, parrot heads Right Yes Bassist Timothy B. Schmidt of the Eagles Coined the term parrot head, Which Cements him as the most successful Bird band boomer Related musician of all time Eagles and Parrotheads, that's
0: true. Well, he, he is in Jimmy Buffett's band. Yes, he is. Yes, he yes. is. I mean, yes. I think that's an important distinction.
1: Anyway, uh, so he does re-record uh, the song The Captain and the Kid for the record Havana Daydreaming. Um, I guess this, this does kind of go down in the pantheon of uh, first records disavowed by people. We've talked about Neil Young and Lou Reed's.
0: Uh, and Shania
1: Twain's. And Shania Twain's, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, I, it's the James Taylor example for me. James Taylor, yeah. uh, his first record was when he went to England in 1968, and was signed to the Beatles record label Apple, and they recorded this album with him, which was wildly out of character from the kind of folky stuff that we know him as. It was this kind of like baroque pop album with strings and like clarinets and stuff. Like it was, and, and a lot of the songs that he did on that album were like "Carolina in My Mind" and and something right. in the way she moves. I mean, songs that became huge later on when he re-recorded them. But this album, it kind of flopped, and everyone ignored it, and then. He released his second album, which became the kind of image-defining one, "Sweet Baby James." You see him with the long hair and the mustache, and this is kind of like folky, Laurel Canyony guy, and that became the one that everyone thinks of as the first, the first impression of him. Um, but yeah, no. So Jimmy Buffett had a similar situation where he has a first album, which is this kind of folk rock type album from 19- recorded in the 1970, and fans and Jimmy alike both don't really consider it as part of his canon.
1: Sold as low as 320, but possibly as high as 400 copies. Wow. <laughs> His follow-up, High Cumberland Jubilee, which just sounds like a Mad Libs of, like, stereotypical bluegrass terms, uh, wasn't released at the time because the label said that they lost the Masters. Sorry, Jimmy, we, <laughs> they're in a back office somewhere. We just can't be arsed to find them. Well, I have a theory about this.
0: They yeah. eventually mysteriously found them in the mid 70s mm. once Jimmy Buffett's career started taking off. So I think they were like, oh, we got this guy who sold 300 copies of an album. was it wasn't even worth us to press them uh how can we just get rid of them uh just tell them we
1: lost it let's yeah. not bother with this it's like the cash-in thing when like an actor becomes famous and they suddenly like someone distributor like snaps up their early god-awful yeah. movies and puts them out on dvd to ma- or whatever to make a quick buck uh speaking of country rock icons how did uh jimmy make it to uh, his uh, home state of uh, not his home state but his adopted home state of uh, florida jordan
0: well, he actually was brought there by another sort of Nashville country rock legend, a guy by the name of Jerry Jeff Walker, mm-hmm. who is a, a star in his own right, but most people would probably know him as the guy who wrote Mr. Bojangles, which was a hit for the nitty-gritty dirt band in 1971. So 1971, take a journey back there with me. Jimmy <laughs> Buffett is having a rough time. I, I'm so sad to think of Jimmy Buffett having a rough time. His first album <laughs> was flopped. His second album was lost. His first marriage is breaking down. He hates Nashville. So he decides to skip town with his new friend, Jerry Jeff Walker. They had met when Jimmy interviewed him when he was working at Billboard for a story. And according to Jimmy, uh, he said, yeah, I'd done a story on him and we actually wound up staying at my house and we got a little, well, we got very drunk that night. Um, Apparently, Jerry put in a drunken call to his girlfriend, which got so rude that the operator chastised him and cut off the call. So, naturally, this was a guy after Jimmy Buffett's own heart. They became tight, and when he wanted to make a getaway from Nashville to somewhere uh, a little warmer, a little more sunny, a little more wet, a little more tropical, Jerry Jeff Walker, who at this point had money to burn because Mr. Bill Jangles had just become a hit, with Nitty Gritty Dirt Band was happy to oblige and take him down there. So in November of 1971, 24-year-old Jimmy Buffett and Jerry Jeff Walker hopped into Jerry's 1947 Packard, dubbed the Flying Lady, and headed down Highway 1 to Florida. And Jimmy, I guess, poor, poor Jimmy, Jimmy Buffett in this era, can't catch a break. He thought he had a gig at a club at Miami's Coffee Shop District in the Coconut Grove area. Turns out he got the days wrong. He had nowhere to stay. uh, So they just kept driving until they hit the southernmost point in the continental United States, Key West. And they made a beeline to a place called the Chart Room Bar at the Pier House Motel. And the bartender on duty was a good friend of Jerry Jeff's, and he gave Jimmy Buffett his first beer on the house as kind of a welcome to Florida gift. Uh, And they became close friends. This bar, the Chart Room, basically became Jimmy Buffett's office, and he would go on to play there for drinks and tips drinks and tips that's a mr, bojangles, mr. Yeah, bojangles yeah 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 yeah
1: took me a second yeah thank you <laughs> i'm just reading that jerry jeff walker was later called the jimmy buffett of texas oh there you go which feels an unfortunate so a reversal. lazy well, yeah. yeah
0: i mean they were friends yeah uh so yeah this place really becomes a second home and he starts to meet and associate with a motley crew of smugglers beach bums and treasure hunters Now, as you can probably imagine, life in the Florida Keys in the early 70s were pretty great. Booze, sex, and lots of drugs. Jimmy would apparently hang out by Tennessee Williams Pool playing Hank Williams songs. And he was a member of a local group of Hellraisers who went by the name Club Mandible, which I don't even want to know. Their diet was uh, mango daiquiris during the day, a little psychedelic LSD-laced punch at home in the evenings, plus speed and coke for special occasions. Oh, so there you go. Yeah. As one does. Yeah, one. It's good to have a routine. <laughs> That's what keeps you regular. I mean, <laughs> everyone in the Keys knew someone in this period who was a smuggler, or as they were euphemistically known, gentlemen of the ocean, since, <laughs> since Key West was a major port for illicit goods then and probably now. And during times when money was tight, Jimmy seriously considered becoming a smuggler, a gentleman of the ocean himself. He says that drug runners actually recruited him, and he seriously considered going along with it, later saying, I was tempted occasionally to get into it because in those days, they actually unloaded the illicit goods in the middle of the day down at the shrimp docks. So I guess this is like kind of an open secret in town. Uh, These drug runners told him that he could make twice what he'd made from his debut record with just a single run, which given that his debut record sold at most 400 copies, definitely not hyperbole but jimmy decided against becoming a drug runner and ultimately opted for a job as a mate on a fishing boat to pay the bills while he was working on his music so jimmy buffett was ultimately not poised to become america's answer to pablo escobar but i do have three stories that i'd like to share involving jimmy buffett and drugs here we go story number one i call this one out to sea One night in 1978, Jimmy Buffett had anchored his sailboat in a cove to sleep off an especially raging hangover. (laughs) Then he was approached by a cigarette boat, which is a boat that does drug runs. Um, I don't know how they got that name. Maybe it was from the weed. Maybe they called joint cigarettes as a euphemism. I don't know.
1: I thought it was just because they were small and fast. Oh, maybe that too. Anyway, this cigarette
0: boat pulls up to Jimmy's boat, and they say, hey, we need to use your radar. Ours is broke or whatever. So Jimmy said, yeah, you can come on and use my radar, but you got to let me go and drive your, what he called, go fast
1: boat. That is the other name for him. I just Googled oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh,
0: okay. So there you go. Uh, so they traded boats for a little bit. The uh, smugglers used Jimmy's radar. He went fast in their go fast <laughs> boat uh, before parting company, then the next day, Jimmy's partying with some folks in a cove he drinks a little too much he goes back to his own boat and he falls asleep in the dinghy which is the little like you know raft sized boat that hangs off the bigger boat fortunately the rope tying the small boat to the larger boat comes loose in the middle of the night and when he comes to in the morning he's floating adrift in the middle of the ocean no idea where he is water in every direction he's lost he's screwed he starts to panic and then from out of nowhere, this same cigarette boat from earlier happened to cruise by and they recognize him and pointed him in the direction of the land. And Jimmy says that if it hadn't been for these kind smugglers, he probably would have just kept drifting and most certainly would have died. That's story number one. Story number two. This one's less interesting, but I include it because it's so strange to me. In 2006, Jimmy Buffett was arrested by French custom officials in St. Tropez for allegedly carrying over 100 pills of ecstasy, which kind of seems like the least Jimmy Buffett drug I can imagine.
1: It uh, tracks.
0: I don't know. He's very laid back and he seems to like Coke or mentions Coke a lot. So maybe that, that is surprising to me, yeah. too.
1: I don't know. Depends on what it's
0: cut with. Yeah, that's true. Uh, his luggage was checked after his private jet landed at the uh, local airport. He paid a three hundred dollar fine and was released shortly after. Jimmy's spokesperson said that the pills were actually prescription drugs, and Jimmy himself later said that the so-called ecstasy was actually a vitamin B supplement called Voltix. <laughs>
1: <Baltics. laughs> yeah, you sure, say Jimmy. I do have to say, uh, reading all this, there is a kind of I do have a kind of twisted admiration for him for this like Hunter S. Thompson esque. Disciplined regimen of right ruination
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, i yeah, just yeah. I
1: just read that Key West smugglers had police scanners so that they would hear in news of incoming bus while they were still out on the water and would dump all their. Shit. And by one estimation, one hundred and fifty tons of baled marijuana were washing up on the shores of Key West. I've I've heard that actually yes <laughs> like a, daily. I'm kind of surprised. There perhaps is a song that Jimmy Buffett wrote about that. I wouldn't be
0: surprised. I
1: am perusing his seaweed. song details. I am perusing. There's a seaweed pun there. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Thank you. I am perusing his song titles in here. He's got some good ones. I gotta say, "Living and Dying in Three Quarter Time" is a pretty good one. I think it's an album title, right? Or is it a song title? Nah, I don't give a f- Either right. way, I just said it was clever. Don't get greedy. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay.
0: And then my favorite Jimmy Buffett drugs related story of them all and it's well known to most fans but i really just want to revisit it huge thanks to our actual friend of the pod i know we say that a lot about (laughs) jeffrey katzenberg and tom hanks but andrew bank is listening this episode's for you the story's for you thank you for reminding me of this incredible story the jamaica mistake a story it's january 1996 Jimmy Buffett's private seaplane, the Hemisphere Dancer that he was piloting, was mistaken for a drug smuggling vehicle by Jamaican police, who then opened fire on the aircraft with Jimmy inside, along with his illustrious passengers, Bono, Bono's wife and two children, and Island Records co-founder, Chris Blackwell. And according to Jimmy Buffett's memoir, they were all having a jerk chicken lunch together, which Hmm. I, I would like to have been a fly on the wall there. Thankfully, it seems like the Jamaican authorities had terrible aim. Of the 100 shots they fired at Jimmy Buffett's plane, only seven made contact with the slow-moving aircraft, (laughs) cracking the windshield and only slightly damaging the fuselage. Bono later spoke of this herring event. He said, these boys were shooting all over the place. Can you do a Bono accent? These boys were shooting all over the place. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah!
1: (laughs) Keep keep going. I felt as if we were in the middle of a James Bond movie. I honestly thought we were all going to die. You can't believe the relief I felt when I saw the kids were okay. Uno, dos, tres, catorce! You know what he said when he saw the cops? Hello, hello! (laughs) God, two most... You know how Fiona Apple says she decided she never wanted to do cocaine after spending an evening with a gacked up Quentin Tarantino and PTA.
0: I just saw that clip. That clip was on Twitter recently. I would rather
1: eat a bullet than be stuck on a private plane between Jimmy Buffett and Bono. <laughs> sorry. Uh, the Jamaican government acknowledged the mistake. <laughs> it's more <laughs> than a mistake a official, in an fired. official, In an official yeah. statement.
0: <laughs> um, and they apologized to Jimmy Buffett who immortalized the incident in the song Jamaica Mistaka recorded for the 1996 album banana wind and this plane is now on display in front of the orlando margaritaville cafe at the universal city walk at universal studios not quite as good as a museum
1: but i'll allow it have you folks been here before no well it's basically like if the cafe was margaritaville (laughs) as you meditate on that we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages
0: Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A
1: wine country, huh? A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California?
0: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install?
1: He scored! Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
1: Long-time listeners of the podcast will know that I love Jim Croce so, so dearly. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, you could say that Jim Croce died so that Jimmy Buffett could live. Back to the 70s Key West, a home of smugglers, surprising mid-century literary figures, uh, Hemingway and Tennessee Williams. Um, So this is the climate of 70s Key West. And as biographer Ryan White writes in his book, Jimmy Buffett, A Good Life All the Way, had he left Nashville for New York or Los Angeles? He'd have been just another folk singer working the song mines. But Key West didn't have a Jimmy Buffett. Key West gave Buffett a canvas no other songwriter had. All that and a hammock from which to work. A place in the shade to think. Sure. Uh, I guess it wasn't quite, it wasn't all fun in the sun. Some of the bars where he played had the chicken wire barrier from Blues Brothers surrounding (laughs) the stage to protect people from getting pelted with beer bottles. But, you know, he had kind of this outsider's perspective, so he was well positioned to turn all this into grist for the mill. And <sighs> Jimmy actually cites a turning point in his career as September 1973, uh, when Jim Croce and didn't his companyist? Yeah, as a guitarist, yeah, also died in the plane yeah, crash. Died in the plane crash. Croce had been signed to ABC Dunhill Records, and they, when he died, as the music industry callously does they wanted to just get another version of him to fill that slot and they picked jimmy buffett to promote as the next jim croce and you know buffett says he didn't think he would have stayed in the music business or become successful if croce hadn't died and you said you've pinned down some uh, anecdotal evidence that they were they were pals yeah i've been having a real hard time finding anything
0: concrete a lot of like jimmy buffett fan site message boards of which there are many I have no doubt active yeah I have talked about this I'm saying in old interviews that like kind of pre-internet era interviews and I did watch clips from the Jim Croce behind the music uh episode which is on YouTube and they do talk about Jimmy Buffett visiting the Croce family farm in Pennsylvania so I believe they were friends in some capacity mortifying uh but you can kind of see. I mean, the comparison. I mean, the, I mean if you
1: swear, yeah, kind finally, of- finally sketched portrait of niche American regional figures with a, a delightfully quirky turn of phrase and short story writer's wit. Sure, whatever. <laughs> Buffett can't hold a candle to Crouchy. you monster. <laughs> Sorry. ABC Dunhill sends a film crew down to Key West to make an introductory short, literally called "Introducing Jimmy Buffett." in which Jimmy talks about life in the area and smuggling weed. In 1974, he had a minor hit with Come Monday, a wistful ode to the Keys set in places that are not the Keys. But uh, sadly, this golden era of uh, lackadaisical drunk weirdos in the Florida Keys was changing. Tourists were beginning to flood into the area, perhaps spurred by the ghost of Hemingway or the 150 tons of weed washing up on the shores daily. It's interesting to me that tourists started flocking to the Florida Keys just
0: basically off the fantasies that they saw presented to them in beach party movies you know the frankie and annette my beloved frankie and annette movies yeah. and i think this is interesting because jimmy buffett's whole output is really the next chapter of the whole early 60s fun in the sun california myth thing right the mythical american paradise that doesn't actually exist on the map but exists in the popular consciousness or, so the, I, ha- or
1: the or the hangover developed after all of those beach parties right <laughs>
0: I just think it's interesting that this early 60s California myth helped inspire tourists to go to Florida, which then inspired Jimmy Buffett to kind of revamp that for the whole Margaritaville brand. I just think that's interesting to me. But these tourists started to change the vibe of the town and this kind of started to bum Jimmy out. You know, when you've been in a place for a long time and then a tourists start coming in in droves and it changes the environment, your special place is no longer just yours anymore gets built up. It changes. And you know, this bummed Jimmy Buffett out, but it gave him the idea for a new song. Yes, I'm talking about Margaritaville. And it's interesting to me because it's become so indelibly linked with the keys and tropical locales that I was shocked to learn that Jimmy Buffett started writing Margaritaville while in Texas. He was visiting friends in Austin in 1976, a woman by the name of Victoria Reed, who had emceed a gig that Jimmy had played in San Antonio the year before. And this was great for Jimmy. He could save money on hotel expenses by staying with a friend and just hang out. And during his visit, they ate at a Mexican restaurant called Lung's Cochina del Sur, which is sadly no longer in existence. And it's here that, according to Parrot Head legend, Jimmy Buffett sampled a margarita for the very first time. It's like
1: the roof of the Sistine Chapel. (laughs) The waiter handing the margarita down to him. (laughs) Yeah, the two fingers.
0: (laughs) And Jimmy, I guess it's... Suffice it to say, enjoyed it. Uh, Later that night, he sat out on his friend Victoria Reed's deck and started working on this new song. (laughs) We mentioned author Ryan White's biography of Jimmy Buffett. And he opens the book in really an incredible way. He opens the book with a transcript of a 2012 hearing before a Nevada Gaming Council board in which the authorities are asking Jimmy Buffett, for some reason uh when you wrote that song did you have any idea how, what it would become and jimmy replies it's been a pretty good song no <laughs> it was written in five minutes about a hot day in austin texas with a margarita and a beautiful woman and victoria reed has said over the years that jimmy would often joke to her i guess I say some royalties which considering it's the most lucrative song in history which spawned a billion dollar a year business i'd say yes Uh, no word on whether or not Jimmy Buffett actually paid her, but he did shout out Victoria on Instagram in March of 2018 by posting a picture of the two of them together with the caption, Victoria made many of the margaritas that inspired the song. So at least he publicly acknowledged her as the muse of the song.
1: Why was Jimmy Buffett testifying in front of the Nevada Gaming Control Board?
0: probably to open because the margaritaville ventures or whatever has casinos right uh, and they were opening they
1: do have a margaritaville at the flamingo they granted him a gambling license in the uh in 2012 oh so yeah that's when the transcript was
0: yeah what a great opening for a book i mean what an incredible scene setting jimmy buffett Laid-back leisure mogul testifying to get a gambling license in Las Vegas, being asked about his biggest hit,
1: he unanimously approved the license. Commission chairman Peter Bernhard said Buffett had been investigated as much or even more than any license applicant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but tremendous.
0: Jimmy Buffett did not finish the lyrics to Margaritaville that day. He actually finished them when he arrived back in Florida a short time later. As he was driving down to his home in the Keys fact, he later said he got caught in traffic because of a car accident and finished the song on the Seven Mile Bridge, which I must imagine is some kind of spot of pilgrimage to Parrot Heads Everywhere, <laughs> the spot that Jimmy Buffett finished writing Margaritaville. Jimmy said that the moment he realized he had something special was when he slipped Margaritaville into his very covers-heavy set list at a local bar, and he said that everyone responded to that song immediately, and I thought, well, this will work good in my set list, but that's pretty much all we thought about it. Um, interestingly, the fact that it took him several days to write was unusual. His longtime producer, Norbert Putnam, has said that it wasn't unusual for Jimmy to write a song in the morning and record it in the afternoon. Uh... Norbert Putnam, we gotta give props to him. He produced Margaritaville in addition to many of Jimmy's other songs and albums. He's a very big deal. He was part of the whole Muscle Shoals scene in the mid to late 60s, and he worked with Joan Baez for her version of The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, and he also worked with New Riders of the Purple Sage. He's got a a very, very uh, lengthy
1: discography. Jimmy Metaman cover where she turns robert e lee into a steamboat oh yeah it's in the original version he said literally says there goes robert e lee and she misheard it and said there goes the robert e lee oh the God. steamboat i didn't realize that. one of my least favorite covers oh uh, ah, yeah i love Joni. jimmy met norbert
0: in nashville where he pitched him an idea of doing an album of songs about his laid-back lifestyle in the keys and norbert wisely suggested that they should be near the water to do these kinds of songs for maximum authenticity so they chose criteria studios in miami which i mean incredibly famous studios where the eagles were working on hotel california probably around that same period actually but it was also home to the Bee Gees who recorded there as did eric clapton when he recorded layla so this place had a lot of history so jimmy and norbert went down to the studio in miami fell into an easy routine while making the album that would become Changes in Latitudes, Changes in Attitudes in November and December of 1976. One of my least favorite turns of
1: phrase of all time.
0: (laughs) They get there at 11 in the morning, out by 5 p.m., and then they go on the Jimmy Buffett's 33-foot sailboat to listen to that day's work on cassette. And Norbert would later say, For that album, we were trying to get the rhythms and the vibe to match the rhythm of the ocean waves against the boat. We were going for a vibe on that record. And we'd be remiss not to mention Jimmy's crack backing group, the legendary Coral Reefer Band. (laughs) You're just pausing for my size.
1: Stop throwing to me for them. (laughs) Reactions. This is one of the many times I wish we had a visual component to this podcast. (laughs) Just my eyes rolling into the back of my skull. The legendary
0: Coral Reefer Band was an amorphous collective that had been with Jimmy since 1974. And at various times, it featured... Big-ish names, including, as you mentioned, Timothy B. Schmidt of the Eagles, John Hyatt, Kenny Buttrey, Nashville Session player, played on Neil Young's Harvest among many, 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 many. Everything. uh,
1: Blonde on Blonde, I think, also. And Nashville Skyline, and Self-Portrait. Big, big deal.
0: Russ Kunkel, and Jerry Jeff Walker, I guess, did time in uh, the Coral Reefer Band, too. But there have been many, many special guests, including Paul McCartney, Sheryl Crow, Brian Wilson, Roy Orbison, and Harrison Ford. What did Harrison Ford play? Washboard? Size.
1: (laughs) Uh And the coral
0: reefer band were crucial to creating the sound that Jimmy dubbed Gulf and Western, which is not only a very evocative name, because, you know, sound of the Gulf shore mixed with, you know, country and Western. It's a clever pun on the old Gulf and Western conglomerate. And as you might imagine, it's a style that combines American country and rock with Caribbean modalities and instruments like the steel drum and marimbas and electric pianos. But as writer J.S. Saxena wrote in her tremendous piece in Eater, Margaritaville and the Myth of American Leisure, while his songs are full of steel drums, lyrically, they are mostly about being
1: a white American man dreaming of a Bahamas without Bahamians. Yes, accurate. Do you know what I just found? You will never be able to guess. No. While researching Harrison Ford's role in the Jimmy Buffett band, I found a possibly apocryphal citation that he is credited with bullwhip sounds on a, a song called Desperation Samba, Halloween in Tijuana. What's this thing about these grade school-ass rhymes? More importantly, in an interview with ABC's Barbara Walters in, uh, that's right, Barbara Walters, folks, in 2008, Harrison Ford revealed that He got drunk in celebration of either Jimmy Buffett or Ed Bradley's birthday. And he got, quote, enthusiastic about Jimmy and Ed's earrings and went out and got one right after lunch. There was a period when he had earrings. Yes. You heard it here first, folks. Wow. Maybe not first, but you heard it here recently. (laughs) Harrison Ford's earring is directly traceable to getting day drunk with Jimmy Buffett.
0: The whip sound, of course. I mean, Indiana Jones. Of course. uh, Yeah. Of course. Son of a bitch. Wow. Amazing. So one day, <laughs> back in 1976, Jimmy Buffett comes into Criterion Studios and tells producer Norbert Putnam that he wants to record a new song about a day in his life. And Norbert recalls thinking, oh, like the Beatles, a day in a life. <laughs> Not really. Well, I guess they both kind of have existential dread, but um, I'll let Norbert take it from here. Here's a quote from an interview that he gave to Sound on Sound in 2003. Jimmy comes in and starts telling me about a day he had in Key West. He was coming on from a bar and he lost one of his flip flops and he stepped on a beer can top and he couldn't find salt for his margarita. He says he's writing lyrics to it. And I say, that's a terrible idea for a song. (laughs) He comes back in a few days later with Wasted Away Again in Margaritaville and plays it. And right then everyone knows it's a hit song. Hell, it wasn't a song. It was a movie. That's a very astute point about Margaritaville, the song. Yes. And they recorded it with Nashville-level efficiency, and within half an hour, the basic track was complete.
1: Classically dry Wikipedia description of the lyrics, quote, The three verses describe his day-to-day activities. In the first verse, he passes his time playing guitar in his front porch and watching tourists sunbathe, all while eating sponge cake and waiting for a pot of shrimp to boil. (laughs) In the second verse, he has nothing to show for his time except a tattoo of a woman that he cannot remember. In the third and final voice, he blew out his flip-flop, stepped on a pop-top, cuts his (laughs) heel, and cruises on back home to ease his pain with a fresh batch of margaritas. That is some genius.com-level annotation. Thank you, wiki editors. Uh, But there is a long-lost Margaritaville verse, not dissimilar to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it touches on what you said about how the, the wonderful dirtbag aura of Key West was becoming distilled with, I don't know, uh, not pure of heart tourists. Uh, and it's a little, you know, it's a, it's a little pointed, a little nastier than you'd expect from old Jimmy. And it has been supposedly edited out to make the song more radio friendly, although he does sometimes sing it live. Uh, and that verse reads as such, old men in tank tops, cruising the gift shops, checking out chiquitas down by the shore they dream about weight loss wish they could be their own boss those three-day vacations can be or become such a bore
0: i mean i I don't know if you're in like kind of a relatively sleepy town somewhere and then it becomes a tourist destination that's that's gotta be tough i mean sure man but like what do you
1: what do you like it's hypocritical. It's like all the. It's like people being like Williamsburg was so much better before all these people. When I was the only one gentrifying it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah well. I, well, w- while you're in a mood,
0: um, <laughs> this is probably a great time for you to touch on the hidden darkness
1: of Margaritaville's lyrics. I'll let you dig into this. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I don't dislike some of the better like some of these parts of his songwriting. I really love the uh the verse progression that oh, the, or chorus the chorus, sorry, the, the chorus progression that the point of view narration takes. Um and it's nobody's fault. Could be my fault. It is my fault. Yes. Um and you draw the parallel to Dancing Queen at the beginning and yeah, it's, you know, these quintessentially up songs that mask a much darker underside. Uh there's a site called Mike Drop Music a uh, writer named Daniel Rosen wrote for it uh, a piece called A Way Too Detailed Analysis of Margaritaville by Jimmy Buffett. Which to is,
0: which I say, Rosen, listen to this show. We'll give you a way too detailed
1: annotation. <laughs> he says, quote, At its core, Margaritaville is about falling into a pit of self-loathing and self-destruction. Take a look at the lyrics of the chorus. Notice how Buffett is wasting away again in Margaritaville. Not only is that supposedly relaxing lifestyle taking its toll on Buffett, it's also something he can't escape. Perpetually living the tropical vacation lifestyle and drinking all the alcohol that goes along with it is breaking Buffett down. At the end of the chorus, he's left with the question of how he ended up in Margaritaville. Buffett is lost. (laughs) Really making this into a a Kafkaesque nightmare. Rosen cites the changing lines at the end of the chorus, which we just talked about. Uh, He says, Our narrator is starting to realize that he has a problem with living perpetually in Margaritaville, and he wants to change it. But he doesn't know how and he thinks it's too late to change his lifestyle. Finally, Buffett has admitted to himself that this cycle of destructive vacationing, relaxing, and alcoholism is a cycle of his own creation. He's fully admitted to himself that he got himself into this mess, and only he can get himself out. So, do we think that uh, Jimmy escapes, or the character that he's portraying, does he get himself out of this, as I said earlier, Kafka-esque nightmare of his own creation? God. (laughs) What, what are you seeing? mm. What I'm just thinking about this song. I'm thinking about, you know, fine, whatever. The song's fine. I guess it's the parrot heads I detest. Uh, You mentioned the Eater piece earlier. It's a thread also in that piece. Uh, Jaya writes, This is not a song about someone who rejects the pressures of workaday life in order to pursue radical pleasure. This is about a man who is depressed and perhaps on the run from the law, for whom shrimp and sea and tattoos provide no peace and who needs blended drinks to hang on to whatever semblance of a life he has left. It is not escaping, it's fleeing. So in that same piece, Saxena goes on to make a really interesting point about the American preoccupation with work that essentially gives rise to this whole perma-vacation Margaritaville culture, the industrial Margaritaville complex. (laughs) How did I not make that joke? Yeah, it's a great piece. Um, It is an incredible piece. You should all check it out. And she writes, In America, leisure only exists in relation to work, and we are a culture that fetishizes work. Even leisure, that nonproductive time, is spoken of through its value to production. We all need time off so we can be better workers when we return. And, yeah, and, you know, American workers uh, take fewer vacation than almost any other country. We work far more hours each week. You know, again, a really sharp piece of cultural analysis. She uh, talks about how Dolly Parton re-recorded a Super Bowl ad that essentially recasts the dissatisfaction of 9 to 5 as part of, quote-unquote, hustle culture. Uh, And she writes, The culture of hustle and greed disguised as effortless relaxation created Jimmy Buffett and Margaritaville. Many of his songs, and now his resorts and restaurants, and the entire aura he projects are about escape from your life which assumes your life is something you want to escape. If the inspiration for Margaritaville is a song about a man who has left it all behind to do nothing, the resort may as well be a theme park for conspicuous leisure. You too can leave it all behind and then come back and brag about how you left it all behind to assure yourself you indeed did that. (laughs) Tremendous. Leisure becomes an exercise in labor. You have this rare opportunity for non-productive time, something to be scrimped and saved for, so you must chill out. You cannot waste this. That's very insightful, man. I mean, yeah. especially when you consider how much it actually costs. I mean, you know, there's a Margarita retirement complex, right? Yeah. He's essentially mm-hmm. created cradle to
0: grave relaxation. He's
1: essentially created a system in which people spend their entire working lives saving up to pay him to relax and buy into this notion of forever leisure built off of a very specific 10-year window of lawlessness and decrepitude in the florida keys
0: in a lot of interviews he describes his concerts as uh cheap vacations for people in the cold states and he's been very i think we, we touch on this later but he's been very open about what he does as, yeah as, as escapism uh and you know everybody needs to kind of like let go and chill out i mean it's tough to take i get back to what my dad said years ago about wow jimmy buffett made a boatload of money." singing about doing nothing it's almost like on one hand he seems to approach it from a genuine place of like yeah everybody just chill out and kick back and relax which we as a culture do but it's very hard to take that seriously when you think of this guy who's the head of a multi-billion dollar international corporation built on that very ethos so Yeah. yeah it gets tricky
1: and again it's like it's all built on such a fleeting effervescent moment I mean, in a way, it's admirable how much hay he's spun out of, I don't know, how long was this, five years I was down there? How long would you say Jimmy Buffett's period in which he has capitalized was in relation to his career? Oh, you mean like the golden era of, uh, of Key the, West. the smugglers yeah. and the beach bums? Five years? And the... Three
0: years? Got there in November of 71 and recorded this in November, December of 76. So yeah, five years. Tremendous. What a ratio. Well, think about it. I mean, like the... You know, go down to Greenwich Village now and you see the Café Wall, and you see all the remnants of the beat poet era. Yeah, which, absolutely. I know. played the
1: bitter end. They f***ing ripped me off.
0: <laughs> go to, the, you know, y- you live out in the Bay Area now. Go to Haight-Ashbury and the whole era that was really only like a place for yep. actual social change for sure for like 18 months maybe two years in the mid 60s by the time in 1967 the whole summer of love thing happened it was already gone like the whole movement was already moved elsewhere so yeah it's interesting to see people who make a career be it in songs in movies in books whatever out of a very fleeting social movement that they then just replay over and over and over again
1: yeah sold it back to this is really the story of american capitalism right you say create a moment destroy the moment through the inevitable machine of capitalism and then sell the moment back to the very people you robbed it from
0: didn't you say that that was one of the theories of the meaning of the truman show the um there was a paper
1: oh
0: yeah no um hegemony
1: Yes, the cultural theory of hegemony yes. About how uh, media exists To sell yes. your
0: dissatisfaction With it back to you Antonio,
1: it's, that would be uh, Italian Marxist philosopher Antonio Gramsci About how film and television Co-opts your enchantment and disenchantment With themselves And sell it back to us Getting f-ing deep in this Alright, Buffett, fine We're making hay out of, this, out of this thing I hate
0: We're gonna take a quick break But we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
1: A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California?
0: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo,
1: and we lost track of time.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
1: Play for free at
0: LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. given that insightful yet thoroughly depressing read on the song (laughs) it makes a certain amount of sense that it was nearly recorded by another artist who was famously crushed (laughs) under the weight of the excesses of the american dream yes that's right i'm talking about elvis aaron presley jimmy buffett claimed while taping a 2010 episode of cmt crossroads that elvis was on deck to record margaritaville
1: you know what that makes perfect sense
0: but then he died in August of seventy-seven, a few months after Jimmy himself released the song, and he never got around to it, or he faked his own death to get out of it, one way or <laughs> another. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah, I could actually see that.
1: I mean, except, except for Jimmy the Caribbean. Buffett, the Caribbean. I can't picture. It. Well, he we did Blue Hawaii. So yeah, you know, yeah, here, exactly. I mean, really, like, if country music is rock and roll with all traces of black people removed, then. Jimmy Buffett is is sort of dark universe Elvis, right? The only thing remotely black in any of his music is steel pans, which are probably played by white guys, and a backbeat, you know.
0: Mm. Yeah. No, that's interesting.
1: So that's a. Uh... <laughs> As we continue tunneling into the dark, cancerous heart of Margaritaville, <laughs> sadly, uh, America did not cotton to it upon its release. Well, it sort of did. Margaritaville was
0: released on Valentine's Day, 1977, a welcome dose of tropical sunshine to brighten up the winter doldrums up north. It peaked at number eight on Billboard and became the 14th biggest selling song of the year. And Margaritaville is really Jimmy Buffett's only true chart hit, as evidenced by the name of his 1985 Greatest Hits collection, Songs You Know By Heart, Jimmy Buffett's Greatest Hits. And the
1: S in hits is in parentheses, so at least he cops to it. There's yeah, it's a modicum of self-awareness. Yeah. I gotta give that to him.
0: He says that Margaritaville's on his list of the 15 songs we have to play or get killed, <laughs> which I enjoy. The sales were respectable, but nothing astronomical. According to the 2012 BBC documentary The Richest Songs in the World, Margaritaville is not in the top 10. The two highest-ranking pop songs are You've Lost That Love and Feeling by The Righteous Brothers mm. and Yesterday by The Beatles happy birthday was number one of course uh it was famously a copy written song until i think very recently and it would pull in upwards of 50 million dollars a year there were also a whopping three christmas songs on the richest songs in the world list white christmas gotta be one of them yep still given that his first record had sold no more than 400 copies (laughs) Number eight on Billboard for Margaritaville was a big deal for Jimmy, and he found out that the song was a success in sort of a cute way. Uh, just before the song was released, he went on a sailing trip to the Bahamian island of Stanal Cay. Excited you say that. And sailing was always very important to Jimmy, and that was really what he spent his first real record industry money on this 33 foot sailboat. And he called this boat his insurance policy. And I can sing and I can write and I can sail. So if this all goes to hell, at least I can see the rest of the world. I got a boat. That was (laughs) him talking about his beloved boat. I think it was called Euphoria or Euphoric. I forget what it was. So he's walking around this Bahamian island and he saw the only telephone on the island. And he decided to call his record company to see if, in his words, he still had a job. (laughs) And that's when he learned that the record was a success and he needed to get back to the mainland immediately and start touring. And in yet another Eagles connection, the Changes in Latitudes album really started to take off when Jimmy Buffett started opening for the Eagles during a series of dates during their Hotel California tour that same year in
1: 1977. I can't believe you didn't read the heading for this, which is the Eagles make life worse. I found a very sweet tribute Jimmy wrote when uh, Glenn Fry died. Oh, yeah. And he very pointedly does not mention Don Henley. Uh He thanks almost everyone else in the Eagles not don henley which makes sense can you think of any more anyone more tight-assed and diametrically opposed to jimmy buffett than don henley other than james brown
0: (laughs) (laughs) i can almost see them being so far like at opposite ends of the circle that they're almost close which is probably why they don't like each
1: other yeah yeah. i I mean
0: i i don't know that they don't like each other i'm just i'm just saying that based on what what
1: what you're implying (laughs) your libelous statement (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 23 out of 74 for this episode.
0: And so began the tour that basically hasn't stopped. He's had over 40 of them over the years. He makes way more money from touring than he ever did records. Uh, as I said earlier, Margaritaville's his only top 10 song. Between 1990 and 2014, his concerts grossed over 400 million. And that puts Jimmy Buffett alongside people like the Rolling Stones and U2 and Elton John. And his ferocious road-dogging rivals Bob Dylan's never-ending tour mm. and caters to a fan base that is really only rivaled by the Deadheads in terms of intensity. Yes, of course, I'm talking about the Parrot Heads, as you mentioned earlier, coined by ex-Eagles member and Coral Reefer bandmate Timothy B. Schmidt. Famous Parrot Heads include Harrison Ford, Al Gore, Don Johnson, Jay Leno, general norman schwarzkopf apparently jesus christ um, michael douglas bill murray makes a lot of sense brian Gumble mm-hmm. less sense angelica houston john elway too many to mention but we have to give special mention to bill clinton he was such a fan of jimmy buffett that his chief of staff john podesta arranged for a surprise jimmy buffett performance on the white house lawn in august 2000 as a belated birthday present for bill and this was i guess the end of his second term and the gig was kind of an affectionate nod to the time that jimmy buffett sang for him on the campaign trail back in 1992 which was sort of a highlight of their you know early campaign so this was all a surprise and jimmy buffett and the coral reefers had to be smuggled in to the white house grounds with stealth and secrecy and press were excluded from the event (laughs) which had uh, an audience of 200 White House staffers and one presidential aide complained that the younger members of the administration only recognized Margaritaville. How dare they not know his deeper cuts?
1: Hey, Jimmy, uh, you know, I got you guys, uh, got you guys in through the Kennedy sex tunnels. (laughs) Uh, Now we have to extend into what I like to call the Margaritaville cinematic or the Margaritaville (laughs) extended universe. You know, I got to begrudgingly give it to him. He's a medium funny guy good storyteller good storyteller does sketch uh uh uh, good scenes he has apparently written three new york times bestsellers which is jesus christ sorry you have to cut all my profanity or bleep it whatever but what are his books
0: about probably the same stuff his songs are about or his adventures in key west uh before uh, (sighs) five years
1: five years of his life paving the way for the next 300. Wait,
0: it gets better. He has number one bestsellers on both the fiction and nonfiction lists. Last I checked, only seven other authors have achieved this level of success. So it puts him in a camp with Ernest Hemingway, John Steinbeck, and
1: Dr. Seuss. Does it get better, Jordan?
0: Does it, it really gets better. It really we gets become better? old and decrepit. Our bodies fall apart. Our loved ones leave us. And then we're alone. And then we die. <laughs> In a way, we're all wasting away again <laughs> in Margaritaville. Heart
1: of darkness. We're going to do a Coppola-style documentary about this podcast where we both have heart attacks by the end of it. Wasting away again in, in the <laughs> You should cut a trailer of this of me naked, like I said, in the hotel room, just looking out through the Venetian blinds. It's Margaritaville. Puff it. Speaking of classic cinema Jimmy's tried to branch into other forms of media Not content with his domination on uh, the wax and the page He called a movie Of course he called it Margaritaville colon the movie Subtitled A Love Triangle Adrift in the Bermuda Triangle That's not bad (sighs) It was to star a cowboy and an ex-smuggler Who would join forces Synopsis reads as follows Margaritaville is about two guys from different worlds who become great buddies as they, one, travel from island to island in the Caribbean, having adventures and meeting various eccentrics, and two, resolve their comic love triangle with a beautiful girl, and three, save the island of Margaritaville and the way of life it symbolizes from the forces of greed and hypocrisy, as opposed to turning the island of Margaritaville into something that symbolizes greed <laughs> and hypocrisy. So they basically, he pitched Butch in Sundance. Yeah. And he wanted to get Robert Redford as one of the roles. There you go. Uh, This stayed in development all throughout the 80s with a host of drafts. Mike Nesmith of The Monkees was signed on to produce and direct. Only if this would have had the bizarre energy of that acid movie that The the Monkees made. Yeah, Yeah. Head. Mike Nesmith was like a
0: big, basically, especially this came out more when he died. A sinist? Well, invented MTV, basically. Invented Mm. music videos, which uh, obviously from his experience on The Monkees makes a lot of
1: sense. All the, the televisual elements. True, 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 true. Can't say the same about Jimmy. Uh, He sent the script to Harrison Ford of day drinking and getting ears pierced fame. And Robert Redford, who played Cowboys. Harrison Ford, you will remember. Uh, Han Solo was a space smuggler.
0: Oh,
1: yeah. Wow. Yep, 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 yep. Um, But apparently they both passed. So sad. Uh, never made it out of development hell, but Jimmy did get his moment on screens, both big and small. He has made cameos in several movies and TV shows, including Repo Man. He's in f-ing Repo Man? Yeah, the dude. Alex
0: Cox movie? What? He's in some incredible... Yeah, Repo Man,
1: additional blonde agent, 1984, yeah. Holy cow, that is... That is something. Congo, the Michael Crichton movie about cyborg gorillas... <laughs> <laughs> this gets better and better. He
0: must have a relationship with Michael Crichton because he was also in Jurassic World,
1: when, which is the novel was written yeah, by Michael Crichton. Yeah, Crichton was long dead by then, though. Yeah, but maybe it was some kind of, like, deathbed, like... I have... like the idea that his agent is, like, or his manager is just, like, has their finger on the pulse of, like, semi-fringe sci-fi movies going through Hollywood. Uh, anyway, yeah, he plays a bartender fleeing a Tyrannosaurus attack, carrying away two margaritas bizarrely enough he turned down the opportunity to appear in a pirates of the caribbean movie the first one 2003 he had played a pirate in hook uh which i think we, I, gl- I neglected to mention earlier so it would have been a return to four of him and yeah and you know keith richards turns up in that and which one is paul McCartney in?
0: he's in the one from i think 2017 I remember the most recent one probably most likely the last one mm. um oh wait there's a sixth one coming <sighs>
1: But not content with only movies. Jimmy also extended his uh, his octopus-like arms to the <laughs> stage. To the great white way, treading the boards. I am running out of Broadway cliches. In 1997, he and the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Herman Wouk. Wouk? I think Wow, He did Mutiny on the Bounty, too, I think. No, the Kane Mutiny. Kane Mutiny. Yeah. They collaborated on a musical in 1997 based on Wouk's uh, 1965 novel, Don't Stop the Carnival. The book is about a Manhattan press agent having a midlife crisis who leaves New York for the Caribbean. It played Miami and was panned by the Orlando Sentinel. And then went to the Atlantis Resort in the Bahamas, where it played until 2001. Sadly, never made it to Broadway. Uh, He had other Broadway offers. Two theater guys tried to pitch him uh, a sort of uh, Bruce Springsteen-esque one-man show thing where he kind of played his... (laughs) kind of played his hits this is hilarious he turned it down because it wouldn't have made him enough money because of the cost of hiring crew members which tracks well again his tours
0: his tours are making you know hundreds of millions of dollars yeah he doesn't need this
1: yeah and then he finally uh succeeds in uh i guess this is 2018 with his uh escape to margaritaville i'd like to see escape from margaritaville Unsurprisingly, it's about a bunch of beach guys in the Caribbean. Uh, That is astounding to me he turned down a run on Broadway because it wouldn't have made him enough money because the tech people were all union. Anyway, while we're on the topic of savage, unfettered greed, Jordan, tell us about his ascendancy into one of the richest musicians (laughs) of all time.
0: Yes, the elephant in the room during this whole episode is the fact that Jimmy Buffett turned this anthem of lazy, down-with-the-man hedonism into a billion-dollar empire. How did he do that, you ask? Well, like all good business people, he sued the restaurant chain Chee Chees. <laughs> Let's take it back a bit. Jimmy always had his eye on merch, just like many gigging musicians who make most of their money on touring. You know, musicians who don't have a lot of hit records who can pull in a big audience know that merch is a crucial way to make a lot of money on tour. I mean, you're a touring musician. With. Yeah,
1: baby, you make money on t-shirts. I, I knew a guy in a metal band who had a bunch of those like really graphic like v- beautifully illustrated t-shirts for his band at the the merch like 10 different t-shirts designed at their merch stand. <laughs> he was like, "Man, I don't play music. I should I sell shirts." <laughs> I mean, yeah, Jimmy took
0: a a similar uh approach to this, or a similar mentality to Supposedly this.
1: Supposedly ground zero for his desire to make his own shirts was seeing his name misspelled on bootlegs. Jimmy Buffett? Yeah, he saw it spelled with one T and he said, Fuck it, I'll make my own.
0: <laughs> I love okay, that I respect that. That yeah, I like for a sure. lot. Yeah. Um so Jimmy Buffett opened his first Margaritaville store in Key West in 1985. And he explained this rationale in a 1988 interview with the South Florida Sun-Sentinel. He said, quote, I know I'm just a mediocre singer and writer, but I'm a great performer and that's what counts. I'm one of the few living legends left, but I try not to think how long I will last. I just try to remember to duck because it might all go to hell in a moment's notice. That's why I started my store. I figured if I couldn't have my music career anymore, I could still capitalize on my audience. I don't just sell them t-shirts, I sell them a Jimmy Buffett lifestyle. Cookbooks, music, books I like to read. So at least he's very, not only aware of this, but also fine with, being, with talking about it. But things got weird in the early 80s when the restaurant chain Chee Cheese attempted to trademark Margaritaville as a drink special. And this got Jimmy pissed. And although you can't legally trademark a song title, his lawyers argue that Margaritaville had become indelibly linked with Jimmy Buffett himself. And Chichi's responded to this claim with a bit of catty legalese, saying, quote, If a nexus exists between songs and restaurants, the opposer could claim an equal nexus exists between songs and the tangible items of the universe. They were being sarcastic, but this was kind of a light bulb idea for Jimmy Buffett and his organization. Why not brand everything, the tangible items of the universe? And as soon as the court ruled in his favor against Chi-Chi's, making Jimmy Buffett and Margaritaville basically one and the same in the eyes of the law, that's exactly (laughs) what he did. Casinos, restaurants, resorts, jewelry, clothes, beer and alcohol, a Sirius XM radio network, a record label, even a retirement community called Latitude Margaritaville for parrot heads, quote, 55 or better. There are now 60 Margaritaville bars and restaurants across the United States, Mexico, Canada, and the Caribbean. I would continue with all this Margaritaville branded stuff, but frankly, I am bored. Everything you can imagine. It exists. It's like the, what was rule 43 of the internet? Yeah. Yeah. So, rest assured, all this Margaritaville merch has made Jimmy Buffett a very rich man. Margaritaville Holdings, which is owned solely by Buffett and his business partner, has recently brought in $2 billion annually. And you better believe Jimmy gets a cut of that. He ranked 13 on Forbes 2016 list of wealthiest American celebrities with a net worth of 550 million and other musicians rank higher. You've got your Sean Combs. You got your Jay Z's. You got your Dr. Dre's, but Jimmy Buffett basically did this on the back of a single song, and that's what makes him and his story unique. Margaritaville has seven chords. It has 208 words. Is written in just a few hours, Max, but it has kickstarted a multi-billion dollar empire. As I said at the top of the episode, Bloomberg has called Margaritaville the most lucrative song in history. And for an article published a couple years back, I think in 2013, they interviewed a man named Robert Brauneis, who's a professor of intellectual property at the George Washington University Law School. And he said, if there's anything on the same scale as Margaritaville, it's not a song. It's a motion picture, which is what, producer Norbert Putnam actually described the song as initially way back when they recorded it. Um, getting back to this law professor, he says, when you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, you have to think in terms of Star Wars or Winnie the Pooh or Transformers. That's probably in the same order of magnitude. When you're talking about valuable songs, that normally depends on royalties. Like I said earlier, White Christmas, You've Lost That Love and Feel and Yesterday or Happy Birthday. But Margaritaville is different in that it's a secured trademark. The title is a secured trademark, uh, making it no longer a songwriting copyright, but a whole multinational business empire. And this law professor continues, from a larger business perspective, when you combine the two and look at what the song stands for as a lifestyle and as a branding vehicle, it's worth far more than happy birthday. I can't think of another example of a song that has had that total impact. Jimmy Buffett really was, in a lot of ways, miles ahead of the curve when it came to building a brand, setting the stage for people like Dr. Dre with Beats or Dolly Parton with Dollywood or many other examples that I can't think of offhand.
1: Yeah, and the, like, greedy, crass commercialization of just, like, trying to trademark every single thing under the sun, like Taylor Swift trying to file a trademark for the phrase Shake It Off or, like, Kylie Jenner trying to trademark Rise and Shine. Like, my God. Talk about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers. Like the English language is now just like another thing you can buy. Didn't some college recently copyright the, the word the? <laughs> yes, Ohio State. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, and they won! Oh my god, that was just like two weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. That's
0: what made me think of it.
1: The has been a rallying cry in the Ohio State community for many years, and Buckeye fans. <sighs> Jesus Christ. Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, oh, uh, should, uh, should we let this go before God. you have a coronary? Oh, God. Sure. Whatever, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Margaritaville lifestyle's brainworms have infiltrated me. I feel myself becoming more relaxed the moment I could go for a margarita. Perhaps the largest one ever. Uh, appropriately enough, the Guinness World Record for largest margarita ever was broken on October 14th, 2011 in Vegas, baby. At 80. a Margaritaville location. Well, of course. In Vegas. You think he was gonna let that shit happen on not on his watch? <laughs> he probably would have descended with the Margaritaville Gestapo black bag to the bartenders. <laughs> he would have hired the Jamaican authorities that shot at his plan. What's the holding cell at Margaritaville Resorts like? How fucking terrible do you have to be the to brig? get to get yeah, to get arrested in a Margaritaville? Oh my God! Okay, eighty five hundred gallons in a tank that measured one inch short of seventeen feet tall, ten feet in diameter, approximately three hundred man hours divided <laughs> across sixty people, and named Lucky Rita. That was the name of the record-breaking margarita, Lucky Rita. A lovely Rita Rip.
0: Oh, maybe I was eh. just thinking Las Vegas, but that. Oh uh, yeah, it
1: feels yeah. half-assed to me. That should have gone back to the board. Uh, and. Celebrating the inauguration of said Margaritaville Casino at the Flamingo in Las Vegas. All right.
0: Wrapping up. Yes, this feels like an appropriate note to go out on. An ostentatious, bordering on grotesque display of excess (laughs) in the tackiest city of America. But, you know... It's impossible to ignore the joy that this song and the lifestyle around it brings to people on a mass scale. As a little boy, I saw it up close with my own two eyes with my father and his friends. You can't take that away from people. Jimmy himself describes the song Margaritaville as, quote, pure escapism. I was just lucky enough to have my thumb on the pulse. My concerts are a party, a cheap vacation for people in cold climates. And as writer J.S. Exena observes in the incredible Eater piece I keep referencing, Margaritaville has been completely recontextualized after decades of serving as an anthem for burnt-out yuppies, hedonistic kids, or idealists of every stripe. It's no longer a song about a man whose life is obviously a mess. It's a song about defiance in the face of this existential despair. To use her words, it's a song about, quote, insisting, despite all evidence to the contrary, you're having a good time. Delusional, maybe, but choosing to be happy counts for something, right? That's what my therapist says, at least. <laughs> we'll give the last word to Jimmy himself. Last year, he told Arizona Central, I think it's really part of the human condition that you've got to have some fun. You've got to get away from whatever you do to make a living or other parts of life that stress you out.
1: I think that was Jim Jones's pitch. <laughs>
0: Well, Heigl, we've wasted the way in Margaritaville for long enough. <laughs> I've found my shaker of salt, so I think it's time to cruise on back home. Folks, thank you for listening. We hope you'll tune in next time for our 90-minute exploration of Jimmy Buffett's 1999 song, Math Sucks. <laughs> Until then, I'm Jordan Runtog. I'm Alex Heigl. We'll catch you next time. <sighs> Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio.
1: The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original
0: music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool.
0: Ski slopes! Wait!
1: Did we just invent California?
0: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express.
1: Terms apply. Learn
0: more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause.